Hello, and welcome to Decarbonize, the clean energy podcast from Fresh Energy. Fresh Energy is a Minnesota nonprofit working to speed our state's transition to a clean energy economy. My name is Joe Olson. I do communications here at Fresh Energy. I am here today to share with you a recording of our recent webinar outlining Fresh Energy's four key recommendations for immediate steps state policymakers should take during summer 2020 special sessions. These recommendations address the most urgent needs of Minnesotans first. And with that, I will begin the recording. Thank you for tuning in. I think we're going to get our webinar today rolling. Thank you everyone for being here. My name is Joe Olson. I do communications here at Fresh Energy and thank you for joining us for a conversation about Fresh Energy's recommendations for a special session. Today we'll be hearing from Michael Noble, Fresh Energy's Executive Director, Justin Fay, Director of Government Affairs, and Ben Passer, Director of Energy Access and Equity. So we're going to be taking about the first half hour of this webinar to go through Fresh Energy's four recommendations for immediate action during the special session. And then the second half hour, we're going to open up to your questions. Uh, one request is to please use the Q&A function in Zoom if you are able, um, if you click the button at the bottom of your screen that says Q&A. It will pull up a box and you can submit questions. You can upvote other people's questions. Um, you can use chat to talk to each other or talk to panelists, but please don't submit questions there. And with that, I think I'm going to turn things over to Michael Noble to kick off the conversation. Welcome, Michael. Thank you so much, Joe, and um, welcome uh, Fresh Energy friends and uh, Colleagues, uh, we uh, wanted to take uh, time to very, very informally talk about our special session recommendations. Uh, the session is supposed to begin tomorrow, and uh, we've been thinking about what views we're going to put forward in the public uh, to pursue with our policy strategies and our lobbyists and our, our public voice during the special session. And a lot of uh, what uh, has uh, motivated us is what's motivating everyone and making everyone uh, especially tuned into the issues of uh, race and oppression and uh, injustice in our community. Uh, it was the, the murder of uh, a George Floyd, Mr. George Floyd at 38th in Chicago on Memorial Day. And um, I just want to say that uh, when that happened, uh, within 48 hours, uh, we made a decision we had to publicly speak to that. We issued a statement the following day. Uh, everybody on your screen uh, worked with me on that statement. Uh, it, was, it was moving, it was difficult, but I think it was also powerful that uh, we publicly uh, spoke up uh, that this is a an organization here that's been focusing on the clean energy economy for 30 years and we recognize we're an organization with some influence and we have a platform and we've acquired some power but we're also really an institution that's grounded in privilege and uh, you know that decades and decades of uh, injustice and oppression benefits fresh energy because we're a creature of American philanthropy and American philanthropy is a creature of American wealth and American wealth has been in part uh, comforted and comfortable with and uh, supportive of uh, this system of injustice and oppression that's basically uh, endured since the Civil War and before. So 
uh, you can read our statement. Uh, it's on our website. Uh, it's short it, and it, it acknowledges the privilege, but it also calls on uh, Fresh Energy to find a voice and find a, a way to be an anti-racist organization. At the same time, we're being a clean energy economy organization and a climate action organization. We are a, an anti-racist organization. And it's, it's new for us. Uh, we've been working on these issues the last three years. Uh, we've been applying some intentionality. But um, we wanted today to talk about our special session agenda because we want to follow up words with actions. Uh, words are not enough at this time. We have to have action and we have to have agency and we have to have voice. And uh, a public policy that uh, does no harm on racial inequity is not enough. We need public policy that dismantles racial inequity. Uh, and uh, this first step of uh, public policy advocacy uh, against uh, aggression and oppression and injustice, this is not the be all, this is not the end all. Uh, you know, and as a white leader of a, a privileged organization, I don't want to be white centered uh, about our voice. I want to listen and learn and uh, elevate other voices to, to uh, that I can learn from and that Fresh Energy can learn from as we go down this path of uh, learning what it means to be an anti-racist organization. So with that, I'm going to uh, turn the uh, program uh, over. Uh, and I guess, uh, Joe, are you going to introduce our next speaker? Yeah, uh, Justin, if you could take a moment to tell us a little bit about what a special session will look like this summer, what we can expect to see and hear from, from folks. Sure, well, that, uh, that's really the question of the hour, isn't it? Um, you know, the, uh, we've got a little bit of clarity uh, at this stage. Uh, the governor announced yesterday that uh, he was calling a special session uh, to begin at 12 o'clock noon tomorrow, uh, Friday. Uh, and uh, what's interesting about this special session is opposed to how special sessions normally work is this one hasn't been negotiated in any specific way. Um, typically in Minnesota special sessions, when the governor calls it, uh, what you see is an agreement at the front end that uh, the governor and the four caucus leaders agree, uh, you know, we're going to meet in special session on this day, we're going to work on these issues and only these issues, and we're going to adjourn by this day. Um, what the governor has actually done here uh, is announced that the special session is starting at 12 o'clock noon tomorrow, uh, and then that's it. Um, there's not an agreement among the leaders over what is or isn't um, uh, on the agenda. There's not an agreement among the leaders about when it's going to end. And uh, because of the statutes that govern the governor's uh, uh, peacetime emergency powers, it is possible, if not likely, that we will need to do this again uh, in about a month. Um, the, the way I understand the law uh, is that the uh, legislature has to have the opportunity to vote on whether or not to continue the governor's peacetime emergency powers every 30 days. Um, so they don't have to pass it. Um, they don't actually have to it's sort of like how uh, confirmations work in Minnesota. They get a sort of a veto, basically. Um, but they have to have the opportunity to take a vote, which means that they need to be in session. So uh, even if they uh, came in tomorrow in special session, uh, convened, and then adjourned right away, which is not going to happen, um, they would still have to come back in July 
um, and every 30 days subsequently until uh, the governor, uh, e either the legislature uh, by, by vote of both chambers ended the peacetime order, uh, emergency order, or the governor rescinded it. Um, so we, we may be in for a long summer of special session um, or not. We don't really know yet, but we do know that it's starting tomorrow at 12 o'clock. Thank you for that, Justin. That's a good 101. And a uh, good affirmation too that we're not really sure what will happen. Um, that said, Fresh Energy did uh, put lots of thought into some key recommendations for what could happen in this special session. So uh, recommendation number one is to prioritize transformational police reform and community recovery. Justin, would you like to get us started on this conversation point? Sure. Um, so this is, uh... You know, this is a, uh, we weren't sure how it was going to be received uh, having an organization like Fresh Energy uh, make, uh, uh, you know, in include this explicitly in a uh, set of recommendations, policy recommendations for special sessions. Um, it's a little bit outside of the scope of what we normally work on. And um, I think we were, you know, I, my, my guess is there's probably at least one person uh, watching the webinar uh, who might be thinking that. Uh, that's curious or that maybe we should, uh, you know, take a step back or stay in our lane, uh, so to speak. But, um, you know, we, after a lot of internal uh, discussion, really weren't comfortable with that. Um, you know, there's, uh, I think, a, a track record or a pattern of, uh, frankly, white-led uh, environmental and energy organizations, um, you know, giving voice to and expressing the desire to work more closely with um, uh, BIPOC-led uh, organizations and communities of color, um, but uh, implicitly only on the terms that the white-led organization is comfortable with. And uh, it simply is not reasonable to expect that um, folks in a community that are bearing the acute trauma that we've seen um, uh, on display in Minneapolis and St. Paul in recent weeks um, that those groups, that those uh, folks are um, able and can reasonably be expected to um, respond to things like petitions around climate action um, or uh, engaging in, you know, discussions around climate policy at the Minnesota legislature um, until, until and unless, you know, much more immediate threats to safety and uh, wellness and well-being are, are addressed significantly. So we felt it was important to name that, um, to name that uh, 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 black people in Minneapolis are seven times more likely to um, suffer from the use of force by Minneapolis uh, police than uh, white residents. And that that is a result of uh, you know, decades of systemic uh, racism and that we have an obligation for the reasons that uh, Michael named to, to call that out. Um, I do wanna uh, acknowledge uh, we were very um, careful uh, when we uh, put this uh, recommendation together in our, in our blog that uh, we're not recommending uh, a, a particular policy approach um, we're simply naming the issue as the appropriate top priority for a special session. Um, we don't have expertise on um, public safety uh, and, uh, and, and criminal justice. Um, we don't pretend to. 
Um, and it's, it is uncomfortable for fresh energy uh, to, you know, historically we've been uncomfortable um, speaking on issues that we don't have expertise on. Um, and so that's another area where we're, uh, I think, departing from another way in which we're departing from our, our normal course of business. Um, but we are, uh, we are calling for action. Um, there are a variety of uh, meaningful, thoughtful, robust uh, ideas that have been put forward by stakeholders uh, and by elected officials and others. Uh, and our expectation is that the legislature uh, uh, take those seriously and act uh, in special session. And I, I would just add to um, Justin, thank you for that, I think, powerful overview of this, this first priority for us. Um, I think it's incredibly important to ensure that as uh, communities recover and begin to rebuild that they are directly involved um, in these conversations. Um, and I think this is something that uh, we were already um, kind of thinking about uh, as it related to um, COVID-19 and the related um, economic downturn, um, but I think has become um, even more kind of acutely obvious um, just with respect to the actual physical destruction of some really vital um, hubs in, in communities across Minneapolis and St. Paul. Um, and so I think it's incredibly important to ensure that communities are part of any conversations related to, um, you know, economic reinvestment and recovery in those communities um, and ensuring that, you know, it's not an opportunity to, um, you know, turn over certain areas of, of uh, communities or, um, you know, lead to uh, worse crises like gentrification or displacement. Um, so I think, you know, we want to do our part to ensure that um, we're lending our voice to, um, you know, really uplifting um, community voices in those conversations, and um, I think that that's a, a significant priority for us as well. All right, thank you. Uh, with that, I think we can move on to the second recommendation. Uh, protect communities disproportionately affected by COVID-19. Uh, ben, I know you've been putting a lot of work into this recommendation. Do you want to kick off the conversation here? Absolutely. Uh, thanks, Joe. Um, so we acknowledged, uh, you know, I think the uh, understandable um, attention around um, systemic racism, uh, police brutality, and uh, related injustices. Um, however, we also want to acknowledge that there is this ongoing crisis of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and this is something that Fresh Energy has been working on um, pretty intensely for the last three months. Um, and it's well documented that the pandemic is disproportionately affecting uh, people of color um, across the country. Um, in terms of health impacts, but also um, economic hardships uh, as a result of the pandemic are disproportionately affecting um, people of color and under-resourced communities. Um, so we've, you know, been working and, and tracking um, individual uh, utility actions in the energy sector um, to protect customers, um, especially those who are facing economic hardships during this time. Um, but, you know, while we're encouraged to see individual um, voluntary utility actions, um, we also, you know, still see a need for uh, comprehensive statewide action. Um, I think, you know, the reason this matters uh, is because there are um, certain areas of the state that are still not protected um, by um, some of these actions that we've seen utilities taking um, in various parts of the state. Um, also, uh, there's not currently a known uh, duration that those protections will, will remain. Um, so, uh, you know, th those are really subject to uh, utilities uh, kind of own discretion on when uh, the, the uh, pandemic and recovery period um, is over. And so we think there's um, a, a significant opportunity and, and, you know, I would argue a need um, 
from decision makers in the state to ensure that um, all customers in Minnesota, um, in terms of their energy and water utility service, um, are able to maintain safe, reliable, affordable service during this time. Um, so we have set out a number of recommendations um, which are available on our website. Um, and we also sent to uh, Governor Walls and, and filed with the Public Utilities Commission um, around protections that energy and water customers um, throughout the state need during this time. Um, so ensuring that folks are not uh, shut off from their utility service, um, anyone who has you know, previously been shut off is safely reconnected, um, recognizing that you know, ut uh, utility employees are also at risk of um, contracting COVID-19 during this time. So uh, ensuring that you know, as, as safe as possible, um, following the appropriate protocols, um, th those customers are safely reconnected. Um, also, uh, some of the kind of standard practices around um, uh, payments and financing, so late fees, um, you know, accruing interest, things like that, um, ensuring that customers aren't subject to those um, kind of standard uh, protocols during this time, um, and also are, are receiving um, extended uh, payment plans, uh, just kind of recognizing the unique circumstances of this time. Um, we really think that these are just a sampling of, of you know, potential actions um, that the legislature could take up during special session um, and, and uh, pass for statewide protections for all customers. Um, there's also, I think, a need on the housing side as well. Um, and we've been working closely with our housing partners around housing assistance. Um, this is something that's been discussed through um, previous coronavirus uh, relief bills at the federal level. Um, but ensuring that folks have um, assistance to pay uh, rent payments, mortgage payments, and utility expenses. Um, so again, recognizing, you know, kind of the unique circumstances of this time, um, what are um, some, some potential um, uh, financial assistance packages that we can be thinking about, um, not just on the energy side, but on the housing side as well? Uh, and, you know, Ben, I think that's one, one thing I think is just important to uh, sort of add to this for a little bit of extra context is, um, you know, in large part because of the, you know, what's happened with our state's economy uh, in the last several months uh, as a result of the pandemic, the um, pressure on um, state budgets and public, just public resources more broadly is gonna be um, you know, at, at, at a level probably that uh, at least I haven't seen in the time that I've been working in, uh, in and around government in Minnesota. Um, and that makes it more rather than less important for um, uh, uh, you know, the, the types of uh, recovery and investment investments that you're talking about, Ben, to be prioritized, um, because it's, you know uh, everybody who has an interest in uh, the state budget is going to be clamoring uh, and scraping and clawing for uh, for uh, for support right now, um, and it's going to be uh, it's incumbent on um, all of us to make sure that uh, those public dollars are used uh, and targeted. Uh, uh, wisely and strategically and uh, as much as possible according to, to need and urgency. Thanks, Justin. I think that's, I think that's a, a really important point. And um, just one comment in the chat that I wanted to um, touch on while we're here. Um, I, I, I want to be totally clear that our recommendations uh, apply to um, all energy and water utilities. Um, so uh, focus not just on electricity, uh, but on natural gas as well. Um, and I think importantly, one thing that I glossed over, um, part of the uh, part of our uh, purpose in in writing our letter to the governor 
um, is that uh, this would also include um, customers of delivered fuel services um, who are outside of um, Public Utilities Commission action. Um, so the PUC has opened an inquiry um, into what can be done around uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, but I think importantly leaves out customers of uh, delivered fuel services as well. Um, and so our hope in going to the governor and really, you know, pushing for a comprehensive statewide um, action um, is ensuring that we're not just, you know, focused on any specific uh, fuel fuel type, um, but including electricity, uh, natural gas, and delivered fuels, um, as well as customers of water utilities. So really focusing on those essential utility services that, that customers need during this time. All right, thank you. Um, with that, I think we'll move on to item number three, uh, prioritize bonding investments in transit and affordable housing. Um, and just one quick note, and I know that there are a lot of questions bubbling up, uh, and I'm really excited for us to get to them at the end of the discussion. Please use the Q&A box uh, to submit them, and we will definitely have a dedicated amount of time to get to those as well. So, all right, item number three. I think, uh, Ben, do you want to get us started here? Absolutely. Um, so, really, the um, 2020 legislative session left um, the question of a bonding bill unfinished. Um, and so this is kind of, you know, standard practice uh, for the legislature, um, but we see a, a really important opportunity to advance equity um, in any bonding package that may come out of a special session. Um, we've been working with a number of partner organizations um, around uh, clean transportation and equitable investments in transportation. Um, and we found that uh, transportation expenses um, are, uh, you know, in particular, uh, a significant burden for um, under-resourced communities. Um, one of our, uh, on the housing side, one of our partners, um, Minnesota Housing Partnership, um, also puts out a biannual um, state of the state's housing report. Um, and similarly found um, that uh, cost burdens are much higher um, for um, under-resourced households and um, households of color um, experience um, double the cost burden um, of, of white households. Um, so all that to say, um, there's you know a significant role that the state can play in um, really addressing some of these um, inequities. Um, and we also recognize that there's significant, significant climate benefits in investing in um, quality transportation options and uh, quality housing as well. Um, so we laid out a few um, kind of main areas um, that we think a, a bonding uh, package could cover um, around transit and transportation jobs, um, housing infrastructure, as well as uh, public housing rehabilitation. Um, and I'll just note before turning it over to Justin um, for a little bit more uh, context here. Um, bonding could also include some of the housing assistance uh, dollars that I mentioned uh, previously with respect to, to COVID-19. Um, I think there's um, some really significant overlap in terms of um, uh, bonding for housing assistance as well as some of the longer term housing infrastructure bonds um, that might traditionally be considered here. Um, so Justin, did you want to mention more on this piece? Sure. Um, I think just a couple, a little, again, to add a little bit of kind of context, um, you know, the, the bonding bill uh, is you know, a, a fairly typical, it's, it's, it was expected coming into the 2020 session to be kind of the flagship agenda item for the year. Um, the House and Senate both uh, attempted to pass and failed to pass um, versions, uh, separate versions of their bonding bill. Um, and, you know, one of the, uh, uh, the, sort of uh, pieces of conversation around bonding um, before you even have a chance to talk about individual projects and how to prioritize. 
is how big a bonding bill should be. Um, and that is often driven to a large degree by just um, ideal, political ideology uh, and um, kind of competing kind of over, more overarching political objectives that uh, respective parties uh, have. Um, the reality is uh, Minnesota's debt obligation right now is so low that there is no compelling um, technical reason why we cannot pass a very large, like significantly larger than we've ever passed before level uh, bonding bill. So I think that's an important just sort of like uh, place to be grounded in that when we make uh, as advocates, when we may we make recommendations uh, on specific appropriations or specific uh, projects that we want to sub have supported in the bonding bill, um, there's really no reason why we need to be uh, moderating ourselves here. Um, there's the state has ample ability uh, to provide uh, support using this tool. Um, arguably, bonding is where the uh, the state legislature and, and the and frankly the state of Minnesota broadly has the most ability to move resources right now. Um, and uh, uh, it's we, we think it's very, very important to push and push hard. Um, personally, I, I've had, uh, I've been more involved in transit work over the years than in housing work. So I, I don't have the, the depth of uh, housing experience, housing policy and advocacy experience that, that Ben has and that maybe folks in the, uh, that are uh, uh, participating in the webinar have. Um, but with with transit, um, you know, every year there's an effort to get transit money in the bonding bill, and almost every year uh, it fails. Uh, we get peanuts or we get nothing. And the the bottom line is that the state of Minnesota has not made a significant, uh, large scale investment in transit uh, since the uh, Governor Polanyi's veto was overridden in 2007. Um, that was 13 years ago. Um, it is way past time, uh, and we're absolutely committed to fighting for that in a special session. All right, with that, I think we'll move on to the final recommendation. Allocate the renewable development account to energy projects in under-resourced communities. This one is a bit complex. Justin, do you wanna start the conversation for us? Sure. So the uh, uh, for folks who maybe aren't aren't familiar, uh, the renewable development account, um, uh, which was previously known as the renewable development fund, um, is uh, dates back to the mid 1990s. Um, it was part of uh, an agreement or a, a, a deal that was struck um, that allowed for the storage of uh, nuclear uh, uh, spent nuclear waste uh, at Prairie Island. Uh, the nuclear facility that's uh, adjacent to Red Wing in the Prairie Island Indian community. Uh, and subsequently, a few years later, was expanded to include uh, uh, dry cask nuclear waste storage at Monticello, which is Excel Energy's other nuclear facility in Minnesota. Um, the way the revenue is generated for the fund is a, an assessment per cask. Um, so for each uh, storage container, um, there's, uh, I believe it's $500,000 assessment uh, for the casks at Prairie Island, and I think it's 350,000 for the casks at Monticello, but I'm not 100% sure on that. Um, and that goes into a fund, it's called the Renewable Development Account. Uh, and the way that uh, that account currently works in state law is that uh, the state collects this money uh, from Excel Energy, 
uh, Excel pays in twice a year to it. Uh, and then the state legislature has the ability to appropriate funding out of it. Um, similar to bonding, this is another area where the legislature has simply failed um, for several years running to get its act together and move money in accordance with uh, how the fund is supposed to be used. Um, there have been a couple of small appropriations in previous sessions, uh, but, but very, very little. Um, this, uh, on the last day of the legislative session uh, in May this year, uh, the legislature did actually uh, pass an RDA spending bill. Um, it did uh, several uh, uh, important things uh, and worthwhile projects, uh, including the Prairie Island uh, Net Zero Community Project, um, as well as uh, 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 an expansion and extension of Excel Energy Solar Rewards program, which is uh, incentives for uh, rooftop solar, um, and then a couple of other smaller projects as well. Uh, so we were very happy to see that get done. Um, it was an important first step. Um, but that uh, uh, bill left uh, about $55 million on the bottom line in the rene renewable development account. Um, so that's money uh, that is uh, under the control of the state of Minnesota um, that can be expended uh, uh, and does not have an impact on the state's general fund. Um, so the idea that we would leave that, that money untouched and unspent uh, in this uh, time of crisis is, um, doesn't make a lot of sense to us. Uh, so the uh, suggestion that we, or the uh, uh, recommendation that we uh, included, uh, are including in our, uh, uh, the blog that we posted and, and we'll be taking to the legislature um, is that the entire uh, uh, remaining current balance uh, of the rene renewable development account be used for um, energy grants specifically to uh, uh, communities that have been most disproportionately impacted um, by uh, uh, recent civil unrest uh, and by uh, economic uh, and racial disparity. Um, and so there's uh, some uh, description of uh, exactly how we would target that um, in the, the write-up that we posted. Um, but the, uh, uh, the hope that we have is that this is a way to get at least some money moving and moving quickly. Um, it doesn't require action by the Public Utilities Commission. Um, it doesn't require, there's not a, an elaborate process uh, that needs to happen here. Um, the state really can just appropriate it. Um, and uh, uh, and money can be fairly quickly moved out into communities uh, to do good work. Um, so that's the idea, um, uh, and uh, we're we're working on it in real time. Um, the clock is ticking, uh, obviously, with special session starting in uh, 22 hours and 59 minutes. Um, but uh, 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 we're hopeful that we can. Uh, uh, move some of those resources before they adjourn. And I would just add to that uh, piece, I think this is another area where we think um, community input is incredibly important. So um, as uh, you know, project and program opportunities arise, as these um, opportunities for um, you know, direct funding and investments um, in under-resourced communities and communities of color um, do come up um, that, you know, we want to, our hope is that uh, these grants are, are tailored in a way that has um, already um, been, I think, a product of significant 
significant community input, um, but also, um, you know, the formation and implementation of those projects um, is informed by additional community input as well. Um, so our hope is to ensure that, you know, this is uh, one step toward those direct investments, but we also want to ensure that um, community members um, and, and those folks who are um, working in and with um, under-resourced communities and communities of color um, have significant um, input into um, how those dollars are actually spent. All right, thank you. Um, so those are the four key recommendations. And if you like some or all of what you've heard here today, we would encourage you to tell your legislators. Uh, we have summarized these recommendations in a letter on our website that you can copy, paste, and edit as much as you want. Um, you can follow the URL on the screen, or it's also in our blog post on the website. Um, on our website under Take Action, you can find it as well. Even if you know your legislators are on the same page as you, it's still really important to reach out and have your voice heard on this issue. Uh, the more people they can hear from, the better. And uh, before we get to the Q&A, if you have any friends or colleagues who have missed today's live recording of the webinar, they can catch uh, this entire thing on our website under publications and resources. It'll be up probably later today. Uh, and also it will be released via our podcast called Decarbonize, the Clean Energy Podcast, uh, probably by tomorrow morning. So people can maybe even listen to it before a special session begins. Um, and with that, I think we are ready to tackle some of the questions that have come in through the Q&A chat box. Michael, would you like to uh, kind of drive answering those? Sure. I, I really appreciate uh, everybody who came today. And uh, before I dig into the questions, I, I do want to say one uh, additional thing about this renewable development account. Uh, I think we have the right suggestion in all candor that this money should not just set this state bank account waiting for another year. There's a lot of urgency. There's a lot of need. Uh, and my first, but I, I also want to tell you this is an uphill climb because getting a consensus on what is an appropriate use of the renewable development count has basically been a unresolved political football for the better part of 25 years. Um, it's only been the last few years that it's been fully and totally controlled by the state legislature, but the state legislature has never had a lively full debate on what, what is the proper use of the renewable development account. So depending on your perspective and where you're from and who your constituencies are and who your voters are, you might come to very, very different conclusions about what a good use of the funds are. So I'm not promising you we can deliver on this, but I'm promising you this is the right um, thing to do. And so my very, very first two calls on this was I called the president of XL Energy, uh, Chris Clark in Minnesota, uh, South Dakota, North Dakota, to tell him that we were gonna come with this public advocacy position and ask for his support. And my next call is to call the uh, guy who reports directly to uh, Governor Tim Walls on energy policy, Commissioner Commerce Steve Kelly. I'm gonna try to get his support. So it, it, it's maybe not a coalition big enough to win, but if we have fresh energy and XL Energy and Governor Walls, it's a big enough coalition to get in a conversation. So that's, that is my pledge to you is try to bring together the Department of Commerce and Fresh Energy and uh, XL Energy and Governor Walls to be on the same page as kind of a starting point. But we really only started this initiative uh, 48 hours ago and uh, go time is 
tomorrow afternoon. So um, I just want you to know we're ambitious, but not promising. So uh, getting back to the uh, the questions, uh, the very, very first question uh, uh, does actually come in about police reform. And, uh, you know, th the point is being made that a lot of uh, community organizations are uh, calling for defunding the police or abolishing the police department and starting over. Uh, and Fresh Energy's blog post called for transformational reform. Uh, how are we addressing the differences between those things and are we going to be taking positions on those? And I'll throw that to Justin today. Yeah. Um, so we were, uh, we use the phrase transformational reform. Uh, I could have a do over. I'd probably write that a little bit differently. Um, I think what we're uh, attempting to communicate is a desire for uh, um, broad systemic change for how we deal with public safety and criminal justice. And that can look like a lot of different things. And candidly, I don't feel like I, and I don't feel like Fresh Energy um, is the right arbiter of what the, what the language is that we should be using um, and that other folks in the community should be using. Um, so I think we're, uh, we're asking for um, attention on this issue. Um, and for that, uh, we define the issue as being broad um, and systemic uh, and the scope needs to be transformational. And um, that's, you know, we, uh, beyond that, I don't, uh, it was not our intention to articulate a particular, uh, you know, pick a, a, a side in a, in a, you know, you know, dueling set of perspectives. So when we, uh, I just want to be very clear when we say transformational reform, um, our use of the re word reform in that context is not fresh energy committing that uh, we think uh, uh, minor tweaks um, or the types of proposals that have traditionally been labeled as reform uh, are sufficient. Um, that's a conversation that's going to play out at the legislature, uh, in city halls across the state and elsewhere. And, um, you know, we're uh, anxious to see where those conversations go and, and find ways to be helpful. Okay, thank you, Justin. Um, the next one I'm going to throw to you, Ben. Um, are there any specific bills or uh, pieces of legislation that we're backing regarding uh, utility assistance, utility help? Uh, uh, who are the housing partners that we partner with and ally with? Are we supporting uh, one of the specific housing assistance proposals? Uh, which ones? Uh, what can you tell us about our work on housing and housing assistance and our allies, especially the uh, utility assistance pieces? Absolutely. Um, a, a couple different components to that question, so I'll take them take them in turn. Um, there's not currently a bill um, that's been introduced in the legislature regarding um, utility assistance uh, during the pandemic. Um, we know this is an issue that multiple legislators are interested in um, and was, I think, kind of gaining uh, traction in the halls of the Capitol um, virtually. Uh, really, you know, when the, the pandemic um, first started. Um, but I think with every um, with everything else that's, um, you know, really taken place, um, especially over the last couple of weeks, um, as well as kind of the, the frantic nature of the end of session, um, there wasn't a specific uh, bill that was introduced. Um, so I think our hope is that uh, during special session, um, that may be an, uh, an issue that uh, regains interest and momentum. Um, and hopefully um, introducing some specific language uh, to that point. 
Um, on the question of our housing partners, um, Fresh Energy is one of the co-leads um, of the Minnesota Multifamily Affordable Housing Energy Network. Um, that's a mouthful to say every time. So um, those of you who um, know us or know our work, um, know the abbreviation of Mama Hen, um, which we um, kind of lovingly use as shorthand to refer to that network. Um, but it's a, a network of energy and housing partners, um, uh, which we really formed around the purpose of advancing energy efficiency in multifamily housing. Um, and that network has been around for about six years now. Um, some of the lead housing players involved on a regular basis are Minnesota Housing Partnership, um, Minnesota Housing Finance Agency, um, Common Bond, Project for Pride in Living, um, and a whole host of others. Um, if you're interested in learning more, you can go to our website, uh, fresh-energy.org slash multifamily. Um, but I, I think we have um, really strong um, housing representation um, in that network, and we you know, certainly uh, try to take those, those perspectives into account in our own advocacy. Um, as far as uh, you know, supporting uh, any particular housing assistance proposal, um, I would say we haven't attached our support to um, any specific proposal. Um, I, I think we're, you know, we support our partners' efforts on this, um, but we know that there are slight differences. Um, so the Walls Administration and uh, Minnesota Housing Finance Agency have kind of, you know, set out their um, recommended amounts for um, housing bonding. Um, we know Minnesota Housing Partnership is uh, a lot uh, allied with um, the Homes for All Coalition, and they have, you know, I think a different set of amounts or at least uh, priorities uh, within their campaign. Um, so I think we think there's a lot of, you know, great ideas on the table, um, but have not, you know, really thrown our weight behind any, any specific proposal, but really uh, want to see something move forward um, in a meaningful way. Um, I'll also mention, too, I think Representative Howard had advanced um, some uh, housing-specific protections um, related to COVID-19, uh, I believe in March, um, and that, that bill was heard in the House, but um, ultimately didn't move forward. So I think that's one uh, piece of legislation on the housing side specifically um, that's been introduced uh, as a result of the pandemic. So um, some protections around uh, rent and, and evictions there um, that I think you know are certainly worth uh, further discussion during a special session. Okay, Ben, that's a great thorough answer. Um, back to the uh, subject of transit funding, I'm gonna throw this to you, Justin. Um, do you recommend that the uh, base building organizations that uh, Fresh Energy work with, uh, should they be thinking of action alerts to the senators and to the representatives about transit funding? Or does that actually harm the prospect of transit funding if more progressive voices and progressive groups are the uh, spokespersons, the advocates? And uh, if groups uh, do action alerts, what districts should we be talking about? What are the target priority districts? That's three different questions, so you can click through them as you, as you go. Yeah, um, so, uh, you know, I think there's, uh, I wanna just say first, there's no one right answer to this question. I think my, my personal experience with advocacy is that there's, there's usually never one right way and one wrong way. There's like a lot of right ways and a lot of wrong ways. <laughs> Um, so uh, I'll tell you my sort of biases on this question, um, but it's not the be all end all um, by any means. Um, I think in general, uh, 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 advocates have a tendency to overthink the, uh, 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 the risk of doing harm by like uh, being seen as for something and tainting that thing. Um, that, that, that is a thing that happens sometimes, but 
um, I think particularly for uh, movement-based organizations and membership organizations that uh, primarily are um, mobilizing people to talk to their uh, elected officials, I, I think that's pretty much almost always and almost without exception a good and appropriate thing to do. Um, uh, folks talking to their legislators uh, about things that are important to them and that they care about is how our government is supposed to work. Um, and I, I would err on the side of doing more rather than less of that um, and not overthinking the targeting too much. Um, if uh, a legislator, uh, you know, if, if an organization has a really large base of, of folks in um, South Minneapolis uh, and you think that those legislators are already with you, that's great talk to them anyway. Um, their constituents should still uh, be engaging, still be talking. Um, and th there's always more that can be done from the perspective of, of legislators. And particularly given where kind of what the arc of transit in particular has looked like over the last few years, over the last, few, over the last decade and a half, um, it, it's not enough to be for it. Um, you know, if folks who represent places like Minneapolis and St. Paul are only for transit, it's not going to get done. Like categorically will not. Um, so uh, oftentimes advocacy and like direct communications from constituents um, isn't just about persuasion. It can also be about signaling relative priorities. Uh, and so, uh, you know, a, a South Minneapolis house rep or, or senator who hears from you know, 150 constituents about the urgent need for transit funding in the bonding bill um, might compel that legislator to go from being a yes vote who might maybe that may be giving a speech on the floor to actively lobbying their colleagues in caucus and uh, and before um, the fix is in uh, for the final vote on the bonding bill. Um, so my advice is uh, uh, whatever uh, for folks that are uh, have uh, either work for or are part of organizations like that that have that capacity, um, you know, generate uh, constituent context often, quickly, um, as far enough in advance as possible, uh, and with consistency. Um, so that there's, uh, and, and don't forget, and I will just say this last thought, don't forget about after the session concludes, um, making sure that there's some accountability, either positively or negatively, based on how the legislat uh, particular legis legislators um, perform or react. Um, let them know that you're watching them, not just uh, in the week that they're leading up to a key vote, but that um, they don't get to just leave the Capitol um, or leave their uh, virtual committee hearing on Zoom uh, these days uh, and not have any continued follow-up or repercussions for their actions. Um, that's super important. So this uh, next question, uh, Justin, I'm going to stick with you. Uh, uh, it's also related to the bonding bill and all of our priorities in the bonding bill. Uh, and this questioner believes that uh, uh, her own representatives would be uh, favorable and supportive. Uh, in, in her own advocacy, uh, where should she focus her energies? Uh, question beyond my own representatives? Question, thank you. Great, great question. Um, first thing, just to kind of continue the thought is don't take your reps for granted. Um, make sure that um, both your state house rep and your state senator hear from you, even if you think they're with you. 
Um, and you can be specific when you communicate with them. Don't ask for their vote. Ask for their leadership and active work to convince their colleagues to be yes votes. That should be your ask. Um, and push really hard on it um, and tell them that you're going to be following up with them after the session to find out how it went. Um, and that, that, that will land uh, in a different way than just a, I want your support. Um, so that's number one. I think beyond your immediate uh, representatives, um, you know, that uh, the governor really needs to hear from people too. Um, uh, there are a lot of people clamoring for Tim Walz's attention um, and a lot of issues right now that are in front of the administration. And um, it's, we have to be louder than we've ever been to have any chance. Um, and even, even if we assume the best of intentions on the part of the folks in the executive branch, um, the sheer totality of the work that needs to happen right now is going to is going to result in some things getting left undone and getting left behind. Um, and so the governor really, really needs to hear from people, um, and uh, that includes both individuals, uh, like like this question uh, person who asked this question, and also organizations. If you're, if you're doing action alerts. Um, direct them to the governor, make sure that they're being directed to the governor as well as the House and Senate reps. Um, that's, uh, those are the things that come immediately to mind. Um, I would just offer, uh, since this question was specifically about bonding, um, while it is always best for individual activists to communicate directly with their own representatives, um, when we're talking about bonding, there are specific committees uh, in the House and Senate. They're the cap. They're called the Capital Investment Committees. Um, the, the House and Senate House members and senators that are on those respective committees are going to have outsized outsized influence on um, what the composition of uh, bonding bills look like. Um, they're not. None of them are individually like deciders, um, but they all are uh, in the in the proverbial room. Um, when decisions get made, um, and that's a great, uh, for folks that are um, looking for a, a much higher level of advocacy, um, that is a group of people that I, I think it's totally appropriate to, um, to reach out to and contact uh, with bonding specific requests, even if they're not your legislator. One other uh, thing I want to chime in about the bonding bill, uh, Justin already said that there's no reason to have these old uh, ideological debates about whether a bonding bill is not responsible if it's over a billion dollars or whether a bonding bill uh, could be $2 billion. The other thing that I think everybody on this call is sophisticated enough to know is interest rates are incredibly, incredibly low right now. It's shockingly how cheap the state can borrow money and the debt service of the state is very, very low. And if, if we ever had a time for rebuilding and we ever, ever needed to use our public borrowing, and we ever were in a hole economically, like this would be right now. So the argument that the bonding bill can be 1 billion or 1.1 billion, but if it's 1.9 billion, it's irresponsible. That is just 20 year old kind of political wisdom that's not wise is what it is. And we, you know, this is the time to borrow money and to invest in uh, rebuilding. And it was the time when we had a climate crisis alone, and it was a time when we had a climate crisis, climate crisis plus a COVID pandemic crisis, and now we have a climate crisis plus a COVID pandemic crisis and a racial justice crisis that uh, 
caused the main arterial streets in both of our major cities to be vacated and vitally in need of rebuilding, this is the time for the state to be investing and to be borrowing money at incredibly historic low interest rates. So that's that's my my soapbox sermon on that. So uh, I think we answered all the questions. If I don't think I missed anybody, uh, but there's one very very specific question: When will uh, when will people be able to click on this and share it? Uh, what how we're going to share this via YouTube or or via podcast joke? Maybe you you could say that. Are you going to email it to them or just tell us how that's going to be available? Yeah. Yep. So we will share a link on Facebook and Twitter probably today if everything goes well on my end. Um, I'll get it up on our podcast, which will, uh, if you subscribe to the Fresh Energy podcast called Decarbonize, the Clean Energy podcast, it will appear in your podcast streaming app tomorrow morning. Um, but also, uh, as soon as I'm able to get this on YouTube, I will post it on Fresh Energy's website as well under publications and resources. So you'd actually be able to stream the video right from there. Um, like I said, you don't have to watch our website. I'll post on social and you'll see it. Um, I will not send an email. I don't want to clutter up inboxes. Um, but if you have trouble finding it, please don't hesitate to email me directly and I'll send you a link. My email address is Olson, O-L-S-O-N, at fresh-energy.org. I think that answers that question. Um, ben, was there one comment that you wanted to, to tackle in the chat box? Yeah, I, um, there's a question in the chat um, that I just wanted to respond to briefly and I'm definitely happy to follow up offline. Um, but hi, Matt, thank you. That's a, a great question. Um, and definitely happy to, to continue the conversation. Um, but the question is around um, how um, energy efficiency implementers um, and similar service providers um, can ensure that services are being used um, in Black, Indigenous, people of color communities um, to help them rebuild with sustainability in mind during this time. Um, it's a great question. Um, I think, um, you know, really starting by reaching out to um, renter advocacy organizations, uh, neighborhood associations, renter coalitions, um, those who are really, you know, most directly part of the community and um, I think are most in tune with um, the acute situations and the dynamics being faced really at the neighborhood level right now um, is, is, the great, is, is a great place to start. Um, I'll just mention, you know, two of Fresh Energy's partners um, in St. Paul um, Community Stabilization Project and in Minneapolis, um, Inquilinos Unidos por Justicia, um, are both our renter advocacy groups and, you know, really work closely in communities. Um, and, uh, you know, IX in particular, I think, is um, really at the center of a lot of, you know, what we've seen um, on, you know, on Lake Street in South Minneapolis um, and in, in particular neighborhoods around um, the Corcoran, Powderhorn, um, and other areas. And so um, I think that's, you know, one uh, approach I would suggest is, you know, really making connections with um, renter advocacy groups, neighborhood coalitions, um, and associations, um, and really just, I think, listening to what the needs, um, you know, currently being faced in those areas um, are. And then I think connecting the dots to, um, you know, this is potentially a way to um, keep costs low, to ensure quality housing, um, you know, going forward for the long term. Um, to benefiting uh, renters who are facing um, cost burdens, both, you know, on the energy side and the housing side. Um, and I think just really, you know, helping kind of facilitate those conversations, but, you know, really starting from a place of listening and learning um, what the needs in the community are right now. 
Um, so uh, thanks for that question, Matt. I'm definitely happy to, to keep chatting um, after the webinar today, but um, I think it's you know a great uh, great thing to prioritize during this time, and I'm happy to continue the conversation. All right, thank you. And and with that, I think we are coming up on time. Michael, would you like to close us out with a few words? Uh, sure. I, I I just want to say first of all, thanks uh, to everybody who took an hour today or uh, to be with us. Uh, it's really great that we were able to pull this together and. 48 hours after announcing it, we have 50 people uh, uh, that signed up. I think 35 people came today. Uh, um, I, I want to say in closing that, uh, you know, I come to this work with a lot of humility. Uh, I don't consider that I have been a racial, racial justice or a social um, justice leader. I have always thought of myself as a clean energy and climate and uh, economic leader on transforming our economy over to a carbon-free one. Uh, you can see from the incredible talent that's right on the screen here that uh, uh, people like Justin in government affairs and Joe in communications and Ben, uh, energy access and equity, um, have really helped um, me to be a, a better leader and um, step forward. Uh, what's incumbent on us at this moment is to not expect our um, uh, our black uh, community leaders to solve this problem. This is a white problem. This is a problem of oppression. This is a problem of systemic change. And uh, it's really, really uh, tricky to both be a spokesperson and leader and acknowledge the, uh, the humility and the need to learn and the need to listen and the need to follow. At the same time, you need to be a leader. So I just want to like, highlight the complexity of that. And I also just want to say that, uh, uh, you know, these three people on the screen are uh, extraordinary. I guess you know that already, just thing, spending an hour with them. But there's 25 other extraordinary people at Fresh Energy, and I'd be remiss if I didn't invite and offer you the uh, opportunity, uh, if you're not right now, be a Fresh Energy member. Or if you are a Fresh Energy member, consider being a, a, a more frequent donor or a monthly donor. You know, having, uh, having your donation on auto pay uh, at your bank or through your checking account. Or, or your credit card, and then invite you to join our, our power circle of donors. We have almost 180 donors now that are $1,000 and up, and um, we would love to have you in that circle if that's in your capacity and your and your level of commitment. So, you know, I love uh, being uh, employed at Fresh Energy, and um, I'm just very, very appreciative to uh, you, Joe, for having the energy to get us all together, and for uh, Justin and Ben for um, putting together such an extraordinary program today. All right, thank you everyone. And with that, I think we will end, the, end this webinar one minute early. So thank you for your time and have a great afternoon. Thank you for tuning in to the audio recording of our webinar discussing Fresh Energy's recommendations for a 2020 special session of the Minnesota Legislature. You can stay up to date on Fresh Energy's work via our blog at fresh-energy.org or follow us on social media. In the meantime, thank you everyone for listening and subscribing to our podcast. You can support Fresh Energy's work by making a donation today. Visit our website at fresh-energy.org and click donate in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.